Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 37, verses 3 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we, are, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers looked at him. <laughs> are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a seat. So I have got a question for you, church. Uh, what were you like when you were 17? What were you like when you were 17? I hear some knowing laughter from the side. Do you remember? I know some of us uh, haven't quite hit 17 yet, maybe 14 going on 17. Uh, and some of us, maybe it's harder to remember 17 than others. Uh, there might be a few more cobwebs to dust out of the way to get back there. But as best as you are able to remember, what were you like when you were 17? Do you know, were you uh, loud or were you quiet? Uh, were you kind of confident or were you nervous? Were you hopeful? Uh, maybe a little bit worried? What were you like? I haven't met you already. My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here for at least a little while longer. Uh, and I am beyond thrilled to be with you today as we dive back into God's Word and move forward in our thorough investigation of the book of Genesis, our verse-by-verse -verse journey through this foundational text of our Christian faith, the first book of the Bible that tells us so much about the roots of our faith and some of the, the origin stories that give meaning to the rest of the Bible. And so today, even as we continue in our long study of Genesis, uh, we're starting something new. We're starting a new mini-series in the main series uh, called Genesis, The Life of Joseph. And so for about the next month, we're going to be studying Joseph's life, Joseph, this giant in the faith. But to begin our study of Joseph, uh, I've asked us to think a bit about our adolescence. I've asked us to recall our teenage years uh, because this morning's story begins when Joseph was a teenager. So again, think with me once more. What were you like when you were 17? See, when I was 17, I was the Northeast Hoosier Conference speech champion. Uh, it was a really big year for Carroll High School. We had done super well throughout the tournaments. And then we made it to the conference meet. And my friends Kaya and Tanner and Lauren, we did super well in their events. But your homeboy took the title for a second year in the row. In fact, I was a three-peat conference champion uh, in the Northeast Asia Conference. So there we are. Our braces are off. Uh, our suits are on. And it is just pure high school joy. Uh, that was me at 17. What were you like? when you were 17. Uh, when I was 17, I also starred in our high school musical, Little Women. Uh, perhaps you saw this week that they are remaking Little Women. Louisa May Alcott's classic novel will be a movie again, uh, starring, what is it, Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet, right? The trailer came out uh, this week. It's coming to you this Christmas, and I'm sure it will be excellent. 
uh, but it is doomed to pale in comparison <laughs> to the Carroll High School production under the direction of Steve Pearson, theater teacher, uh, Jill Duran, choir director. We really, I'm telling you folks, everyone was on their feet. It was an amazing show. Uh, my mom told me it was incredible, and she's super objective. Uh, so. Well, that was me at 17. What were you like when you were 17? Final memory from me, when I was 17, I had a private math class. Uh, it was just me and the teacher, Mrs. Marty Y, total nerd here. Um, and in that math class, during the final exam, she snapped this photo, because uh, she thought it was just weird. This is how I sat on the desk. Uh, so it, since it was just one-on-one, -on -one, it was the desk closest to her desk. Sat like that every day. She said, I gotta get this on film uh, from your final exam. And so she thought that was peculiar. I thought that was natural. I guess it's just a matter of perspective. Uh, but what were you like when you were 17? Do you remember? You know, what did you think about? How did you speak? What occupied your attention? What got you excited? See, the <laughs> I heard under someone's breath, I don't want to know. Maybe I don't want to know. Uh, but you see, the, the reason I've asked you to consider your own adolescence this morning is because our text begins when Joseph was a teenager. This morning, we're going to be entering the world of a 17-year-old guy in the ancient Near East. And of course, during our study, and as you all continue in your exploration of Joseph's life, we're going to see him grow into a pillar of faith a model of integrity, forgiveness, and hope. But this morning we'll watch together with horror as the 17-year-old boy is betrayed by his jealous brothers and sent far away from home. We're going to witness a massive injustice, and we're going to look at this critical event in Joseph's life from a variety of perspectives. Uh, we're gonna examine what happens to him through multiple viewpoints because this is one of those stories where perspective matters. And so we'll be looking at these circumstances in Joseph's life from three perspectives. Um, and all our exploration is going to be anchored in the Genesis text. So if you haven't got there already and you have a Bible with you, would you join me in Genesis chapter 37? Genesis 37, it's on page 31 of our community Bibles. And beginning in verse 2, the text says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bill and Zilpha, his father's wives. Right? So Joseph's father had multiple wives. He's out in the pasture with some of his brothers. And then now Israel, uh, Joseph's father, he also goes by the name Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because Joseph was the son of his old age, meaning Joseph was one of Jacob's youngest sons. And so Jacob made him a coat of many colors. But when his brother saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than all his brothers. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So here's the situation if you've missed it. Joseph is his father's favorite, and there is no denying it. There's nothing subtle about it. His wardrobe says it all. It's kind of like the lyricist Tim Rice says in the iconic Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Uh, Joseph's coat was elegant. The cut was fine. The tasteful style was the ultimate and good design. And this is why it caught the eye. A king would stop and stare. We had to quote a musical today. Uh, Jacob loved Joseph best. And his brothers were well, well aware. Because this created some tension in their relationship. But this wasn't the only thing that put distance between Joseph and his brothers. It wasn't merely a result of unequal distribution of fashion. Uh, there's more to the story. The distance also grew due to Joseph's dreams. 
And we see that in verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more because he said to them, hey, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright. But behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. You see, Joseph's code isn't the only thing that's verbose and overstated in his life. He's got a big mouth as well. And the text tells us that this favorite child with fancy fashion, he has this dream that suggests that he's going to somehow rule over or reign over his brothers. And so he shares this dream with them. And of course, they become angry. Now, before we get too harsh with Joseph, we've got to realize that in the ancient world, dreams were understood, particularly these kinds of dreams that would be so vivid and so clear in their imagery, dreams were understood as having divine origin. And so if you had a dream like this that was so clear that seemed to be indicating something about the future, culturally, you were more or less obligated to share it. It's like God's given you a window into the world of the future, and so, and so you need to tell other people. That's the world in which Joseph lives. So in, in many ways, him sharing this dream, it's not something unusual. It wasn't something kind of out of the ordinary. This is what you'd do if you had this kind of dream in the ancient world. But in other ways, we can totally understand why it made his brother so angry. Because this is their youngest brother saying, hey, one day you are going to bow down to me. I'm going to rule over you. And it's like, dude, who do you think you are? And so tension simmers between Joseph, his father's favorite, and his brothers until an opportunity emerges for the brothers to get some revenge. And we see it beginning in verse 12. It says, now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So Israel, or Jacob, right, Joseph's father, for reasons we don't know, perhaps he wanted to mend their relationship a bit. Perhaps he thought some time together in the pastures would be good for his feuding sons. He says, hey, Joseph, your brothers are out there pasturing the flocks. Why don't you go and be with them? And so Joseph goes, and he searches for his brothers. And verse 18 tells us that they, his brothers, saw him from afar, which I can tell you from experience is one of the risks of wearing loud clothing. Uh, but they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Or before Joseph is close enough to say hello, uh, before he's able to say, hey, here's what's happened at home since you've been gone. You know, what's it been like out on the fields? Before he's even close enough to have a conversation, his brothers see him and they begin to plot his murder. I mean, that's how much they hated him. Provoked by only seeing him coming, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Uh, then we'll see, or then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. And so they seize Joseph and they throw him in a pit. And as you might know, if you've ever been involved in a conspiracy, it's really exhausting. So after that, they decide to sit down and have some lunch together. And in verse 25, it says, they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah, one of Joseph's brothers, said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? You know, what are we going to get out of this if we kill him, right? 
Come, let us instead sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, right? We're not going to be guilty for this. Uh, This is our brother. This is our own flesh. This is weird logic, right? You get it. It's twisted by jealousy. And so his brothers listened to Judah. And these traitors passed by. And so those brothers, they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And then they took Joseph to Egypt. So Joseph's brothers, they plot and plan his murder until they realize there's an opportunity to profit instead by selling their brother into slavery. So they agree to sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And make no mistake, this is, this is still kind of a sudden and final decision, just like it would have been if they would have murdered him, right? This is a, a life sentence to be sent somewhere far, far away. I mean, they're trusting they will never see him again. In light of this decision, they believe uh, Joseph is gone for good. So they count their coins, and they make a vow to lie to their father about what they've done. And then verse 32 tells us that they sent the robe of many colors, the robe that started this whole thing. They, They sent the robe of many colors, and it was brought to their father, and they said, this we have found. Whose is this? Oh, this we found. Uh, Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. I mean, they know exactly whose robe it is. And of course, Jacob, he identified the robe and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob, his dad, tore his garments, which was kind of an ancient symbol of profound grief, and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. So let's recap all that we've covered. There's a favorite son with a fancy coat. He has some big dreams. And then his brothers betray him. And now there are siblings with a secret and a father who is in mourning. I mean, Joseph's 17th year seems to be a pretty low point in his life, doesn't it? However, we said at the outset of our time today that this is a story where perspective matters. If we want to fully understand all that the author of Genesis is trying to communicate to us from this text, it'd be helpful to adopt a variety of lenses, a variety of perspectives or viewpoints to to analyze and assess the circumstances that unfolded here. So again, we're going to be looking at these same details from three different perspectives, and I think it'd be helpful to us to look at what's happened here, beginning with the perspective of Joseph's brothers. Uh, Let's look at this situation from their point of view. Because i got to be honest, the first thing that breaks my heart when I consider this story from the perspective of Joseph's brothers, when I imagine for a moment that I'm Simeon or Levi or any of Joseph's other brothers, is that every single one of them knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they weren't their father's favorite. Uh, There was no denying it. There was no debating it. Uh, There was no way to say, well, last week, Simeon, like you were on top, but now it's just this Joseph week. But don't worry, it's just a short kick. It'll go back to someone else. It's like, no, no, no. They knew that their dad loved Joseph best and that everyone else could only aspire to be second best in their father's eyes. They knew for certain that Joseph was the favorite. Now, I can only imagine what that must have felt like. I can only imagine that pain, that sorrow, that hurt. I mean, that is not how it's supposed to be. No child um, is supposed to feel unwanted or unimportant, but that's exactly what happened here. Joseph knew, 
or his brothers knew that their father loved Joseph best. They knew they'd never be the apple of their father's eye, and so they couldn't help but look at Joseph with anything but envy, with anything but jealousy. They were jealous of what he had, and that jealousy led to bitterness and hatred, and then ultimately to anger and to action toward actively undermining and attacking their younger brother, Joseph. And church, I believe the author of the text would want us to know that that's how jealousy works every time. Uh, Jealousy makes us bitter when others have it better, and it causes us to despise those who have what we want, and it never just lives quietly in our hearts. It will always work itself out into action. Uh, It can lead us to gossip about the person that we envy or that we're jealous of. It can lead us to try to undermine their success or to actively work against them and sabotage them. Jealousy fuels all kinds of unkind behavior. And jealousy isn't just some first century problem. It's not something that only happens if you've got like more than 10 brothers. Um, (laughs) Jealousy is something that exists today and it still leads us to all kinds of dark places. I mean, do you know how to tell if you're jealous of someone else? Do you know a good way to tell? Like, oh, maybe I'm jealous of someone. Here's a great way to tell. When it's hard for you to uh, celebrate someone else's good fortune, uh, when you find yourself unable to wish them the best, uh, when you dream of the day that something won't work out for them, when you hear kind of good news from them and you find yourself frustrated instead of congratulating them, when, when that happens chances are good that you might be jealous of them, that your heart may be gripped with envy. Um, So here's the thing, church, I've got to ask now, if we're going to really dive into this text and see ourselves in it, uh, is there anyone that you're jealous of? Is there anyone that you're jealous of, perhaps a a sibling or a coworker uh, or a friend or an ex-roommate or a classmate or I mean, I don't know I mean, who it is, a cousin. Is, is there anyone that you're jealous of? Because you need to know this. Jealousy will make you miserable. It will destroy your capacity for healthy relationship. Because here's what happens with jealousy. Even though jealousy causes you to be consumed with someone else's success, it also causes you to become incredibly self-centered and self-focused because you'll begin to think more and more and more about what you don't have and about what you think you deserve, and about what you wish you had, if only you were then. And so slowly, even as you're fixated on their success, you become more discontent with your own circumstances, and it makes you miserable. I mean, in the end, jealousy never gets you what you want. And notice this in this morning's text. After jealousy motivates Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery and to lie to their father about his fate, Jacob is inconsolable. Indeed, as we've already mentioned, he tore his garments and put on sackcloth and on his loins, and he mourned for his son for many days. But don't miss this detail. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, 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 I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning, right? Meaning I'm going to make it to the end of my life and I'll still be mourning. And thus his father wept for him. I mean, don't miss this. Joseph's brothers were sick of hearing about Joseph. And so they sold him off into slavery. But after selling him off and after covering up their actions with a false story, they now find themselves forced to comfort their father with a false, insincere comfort. 
Right? I mean, I imagine I'm Judah, one of Joseph's brothers, and I'm, I'm holding my dad's hand, and I'm listening to him, you know, reminisce about how much he loved Joseph and how Joseph was his favorite, and the whole time I'd be thinking, man, how did this happen? You know, we got rid of Joseph so we would never have to hear about him again, and now he's all our father can talk about. I mean, their jealousy got them nothing that they wanted, and jealousy will get you nothing that you want either. It'll make you miserable. It'll make you miserable. So if someone came to mind when it's like, hey, are you jealous of anyone? You're like, oh, yeah, I can see her face, right? Or I know his name. If that's you, here's a quick suggestion for this week to help you fight back against jealousy. Perhaps this week you could sit down sometime and write a prayer of blessing for the person that you're jealous of. I mean, your prayer could be your own prayer, but here's maybe how I would outline it. It could start with like, hey, Lord, I want this jealousy to be like uprooted out of my heart. I know it's not good. I know it's not leading me anywhere close to you, right? And I want to be like you, Lord. So, so uproot this jealousy in me. And God, to help uproot it, uh, could you help me to actively wish well for the person I'm jealous of? God, would you bless them in every dimension of their life? Can you uh, make my heart one that's more able to rejoice with them and celebrate with them? That's one great way to fight jealousy because jealousy will make you miserable. I mean, that's what becomes so apparent when we explore this story from the perspective of Joseph's brothers. Uh, but there's a second point of view that we have to consider as well, a second perspective we need to try on for size, and it's Joseph's. Um, you see, Joseph was his father's favorite, and I uh, happen to know what that's like because I am also my parents' favorite, uh, because I am their only child, right? I know, so, so adopted only child from birth, right? They've saved everything in my life. There's like a Tyler Trinesky archive in the, the second floor of their house. I'm an only child, um, and Joseph was a favorite child. And he's used to the praise of his parents. He's used to the attention of his parents. He's used to them celebrating all his accomplishments and loving everything he does, right? He's, he's used to being the favorite. So I can only imagine what he felt like when he was down there in the pit. I mean, what do you think he did right after his brothers threw him in there? Do you think he like shouted back up and was like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll never wear the coat again. You know, maybe there was some bargaining there. I don't know. Or was he just really quiet? Did he get so sad he realized what had happened and so he's just mourning there in the pit before he knows his full fate? I mean, I imagine there were tears involved. I'm sure that Joseph felt embarrassed and lonely. I'm sure he didn't know which way was up after his brothers sold him into slavery. And while his brothers were offering false comfort to their dad in Canaan, Joseph was beginning a brand new life as a slave in Egypt. Because the text is so clear, Joseph wasn't sold just once. He was sold first by his brothers to these slave traders, but then yet again in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So get this, Joseph, the former favorite, the like prized child, has been sold by his brothers and now by his captors, and he's working in an Egyptian palace. I mean, is he having to learn a new language? He's certainly having to embrace a new status as uh, the lowly status of a slave. He's moved from the very top rung of the ladder to the absolute bottom. I imagine that Joseph is, is homesick and heartbroken. And who hasn't been there? You know, who hasn't had the rug pulled out from under them, so to speak? Who hasn't found themselves in a place they never thought they would be? Joseph expected that his dreams would come true. He expected that great things were ahead of him because he had had dreams given to him by God. He said, I know what's going to happen with my future. I'm the sheath that stands upright. 
But I wonder how much confidence Joseph had in those dreams the first night he spent at Potiphar's house. I mean, in my mind, I imagine Joseph lying awake in bed, unable to sleep, and I would love to know what was going through his head. You know, was he doubting God's goodness? Uh, was he doubting his own interpretation of the dreams? Like, hey, maybe I got it wrong. You know, was, was Reuben the sheath? Uh, was he wondering if he did something wrong? And like, that was my fate. That was going to be what God had in store for me. But now I've done something, and now this has happened. I mean, I have no idea what he was thinking, but perhaps you found yourself there. Maybe you've had some sleepless nights. Perhaps you're there this morning and something in your life is quite different than you long imagined it would be. And I want to say this morning, I don't have any words of trite comfort. I don't pretend to know every detail of your situation, but I just want you to know that the Bible is filled with real stories of real people who were in that same place. And it's where Joseph was at age 17. You know, disappointed, alone, heartbroken, and sad. You know, Joseph's brothers, they were blinded by their jealousy, but Joseph was blindsided by their betrayal. See, we've taken a closer look at the events from chapter 37 through Joseph's brother's perspectives. We've tried on Joseph's perspective, but there's one more we have to consider, and one more point of view I think we need to adopt if we want to understand fully what this text is trying to communicate. Um, so I want you to think about this with me, church. Uh, when it comes to this significant, um, specific, trajectory-altering moment in Joseph's life, when it came to this betrayal from his brothers, this third perspective, what do you think God saw? You know, what does God see in this moment? What did God see? As Joseph's brothers plotted his murder, as they lied to their father, as Joseph was sent to a distant country to work as a slave, what did God see? I mean, what do you think? I mean, I think, I think certainly God saw the injustice of the situation because Scripture consistently teaches that God sees injustice, that he hears the cry of the oppressed, that he takes notice uh, when oppressors oppress people that he's made in his image. Uh, from his throne in heaven, I'm convinced that God saw the actions of Joseph's brothers and was filled with anger against the injustice there. I just think that that can't be denied. That, that's absolutely certain. God sees injustice. And yet in this circumstance, and perhaps in other circumstances as well, I also believe that God saw what was happening in Joseph's life. He saw what was happening because of his brother's jealousy, because of his father's favoritism. And I think in the way that only God can see, God saw an opportunity. Uh, an opportunity to do what only God can do, an opportunity to bring out something wonderful, even when no one else can see it coming an opportunity to transform something absolutely evil into something incredibly good. Because only God can transform something truly evil, like the betrayal of a brother into something good. And in this instance, friends, if God's watching what's happening, I'm sure that he sees the injustice, and I'm sure it makes him angry. God always notices injustice, but I also can't help but think that God saw an opportunity to do something absolutely incredible in Joseph's life. I mean, to save a nation, to restore a family, because spoiler alert, church, as difficult as it looks today, things are going to end well for Joseph. Okay? I need you to know that because I'm leaving, and I hope that Gabe covers this well, but it's going to have a great ending, right? If in five weeks you're not celebrating here, something's wrong. Um, it's great 
for Joseph. He's going to rescue the nation of Egypt from famine. He's going to be reconciled to his family. He's going to be used by God to do mighty work from God in the world. Joseph's story will have a happy ending, but the only one who could see that when Joseph was 17 was God. Joseph's brothers were blinded by their envy and their jealousy. Joseph was blindsided by their betrayal. But God could see something different coming in the future. You know, this morning we've looked at the story of Joseph from three perspectives, right? Joseph's brother, uh, Joseph's perspective, God's perspective. And you know, church, this kind of approach we've embraced, this kind of looking at something from multiple angles, uh, this is something I'm trying to get better at doing just in life. Okay, this is really, really helpful to think like, oh, what are, you know, what are they seeing? What am I really feeling? What is God seeing here? It's just, it's a good way to think about things, a good way to process things. And so this morning, um, during my final Sunday here at the downtown campus on staff, I find myself also assessing this shared moment that we're experiencing, this moment of transition, uh, in the same way from multiple perspectives, right? What are, what are you seeing? What am I feeling? What is God seeing? You know, since I announced that I'll be heading to Cincinnati for church planning, I've heard so much encouragement from so many of you. A lot of the conversations have gone something like this. It's like, I'm really excited for you, Tyler, but I'm very sad for me. You know, I'm excited that you're going where God's called you, but we're going we're gonna to miss you here. I'll miss seeing you around. I want you to do what God wants you to do, but, but I'm going to miss you in our church. And if I'm honest, friends, uh, I'm in the same place. You know, I'm sad for me too. I will miss Kansas City. I will miss this church. I'll miss this community. I love it here. I love the family that we've built together. I love the work that God has done in our midst. I love the change that we've seen, Gabe, and what? Like, you know, three years and some change. It's been incredible. All the transformation that's occurred in this midst, all the growth, all the change in your lives and in my life, I love it here. I love this place. And in many ways, I can't believe that I'm going You know, I can't believe that I'm going to be part of planting a new church in a new city. And and one of the things that makes it hard for me to believe is that when I was 17, when I was riding the bus to speech meets or taking a bow in the Carroll High School Auditorium or, you know, folding myself up like a pretzel in my math class, uh, I never imagined that I would be here. You know, this kind of this church thing, this wasn't part of the plan. I wasn't going to be a pastor. I wasn't even sure that I'd be following Jesus. You know, I was conflicted and torn. I had been shaped for sure by the faith of my parents, uh, by my Christian upbringing, but at times then faith seemed really harsh and restrictive. Uh, It seemed to be out of touch and overly burdensome and joyless. Uh, I was not sure that Christian faith would be for me forever. And so I headed to Indiana University with Henry, of course, uh, but with an open mind and with an open future. When I was 17, there was no clear indication that being part of a church, and honestly, much less even serving in a church, would be something that would become so important to me, um, something that would come to shape my life. At that point, I couldn't see it, but I'm convinced that God could. And that over the decades since he sent friends and mentors and opportunities and education, I think God brought me here to Kansas City to this little church that could and then put Cincinnati on my heart. And so as I've been processing this big transition, 
Um, as I've thought and prayed about what's around the corner for me, but also what's around the corner for us, what's around the corner for the downtown campus, uh, I found myself asking again, what does God see? You know, what does God see in the midst of this moment? What does God see right now? And it's taken a little bit of imagination, but I, I do think, church, that God sees an opportunity here to do what only he can do. Um, an opportunity to bring about something wonderful to cause each of us to grow in our ability to live like him and to love like him. And I'm not sure how it will unfold, but that's the fun part. I don't have clarity about how it will happen, but I just have trust in our big God, and I'm certain that as our paths uh, quit crossing and go in different directions and diverge, that God is going to be at work here, and God's going to be at work in Cincinnati. That the downtown campus's best days are ahead of it, and that the best days of whatever this little future church is called, if you've got suggestions, let me know, that its best days are ahead of it. I'm just confident that that's how the story will go. And it's because of my big trust in our big God. I just know this will happen. I'm filled with hope for the future of our little church. And I'm filled with hope because, you know, Sean's here, uh, because Aaliyah's here, because Henry's here and Ben's here, because sweet Gabe is here, and because all of you are here, right? I'm so filled with confidence from our church. And I'm mostly filled with confidence for this church because Jesus is here. That's right. And I think he comes every week. And I think he loves it here and that he's been the most involved member, right? He's leading the church and that he's done so much work in this place. How could there not be a bright future here if Jesus loves to come to this church? I'm confident that there are bright days ahead here just as I'm confident that God's going to draw together all the resources and all the people and all the plans that we need to effectively serve him in Cincinnati. God, I have great trust and our good God. I'm not sure how he'll do it. I just know that he's in the business of doing good things. It's what he did in Joseph's life. It's what he's done in my life. It's what he'll do here. He brings something wonderful together even when no one else can see it coming or knows how it's going to happen. In the year 2000, uh, Heather Headley won the Tony Award for Best Actress in a Musical for her outstanding performance in Aida. That's right, church, I am going out with a theater illustration. Uh, and if you don't know Aida, you need to. It's one of the best soundtracks in all of theater. She deserved that Tony. Um, and Miss Headley had a great, in my mind, it's a legendary acceptance speech at the Tonys. You can find it on YouTube. And she thanks a lot of people. Uh, she says, I thank Disney for this opportunity. She was like the star of Lion King, maybe you've heard of it. Uh, so she had worked a lot with Disney. And she's like, I thank Disney. I love you so much. I'll work for you for the rest of my life. And she has. Uh, she's been a star with Disney. She said, I think my mommy and my brother, and she ended her time by saying this. Just imagine it, her holding her Tony. She says, and last but certainly not least, she said, I thank God for every blessing he has given me, but especially this one. And I watched that video a lot, and that's where my heart is this morning. Um, I am so filled with gratitude for my time here. I thank God for every blessing he has given me along the way in those early moments of life with my parents and then even in the rough adolescent years when he knew what was going on and then in all the time of preparation. But then coming here, I thank God for every blessing he's given me, but especially this one. And I am so grateful for all that God has done in my life and in our lives together here in Kansas City. So in this moment, encouraged by the story of Joseph, may we see what's happening in our midst through the eyes of faith. 
You know, may we ask ourselves, what does God see here? And may we be the kinds of people who know deep in our bones that God is going to be able to bring something wonderful that we can't even imagine out of this transition, something wonderful here in Kansas City and something wonderful in Cincinnati. That has been the story of my life, church, God doing wonderful things that I couldn't imagine. It has been the story of this church. It is the story of Joseph, and I'm not surprised that it is because it is the kind of stories that our God, the author of our faith, writes. So will you join me in thanking him for the good work he's doing in our midst and in asking him to give us trust and confidence as we kind of go our new ways in this new journey he's prepared for us. So Lord, we... And we are so grateful and so encouraged by the way that you were present with Joseph in a dark, dark, dark moment. God, only you then uh, could see what would happen and how good it would be. And so, Lord, today as things are changing uh, in our little church, as there's a moment of great transition, we ask that you would give us your eyes of faith. Help us to have confidence rooted in our trust in you that there is a bright future ahead for all of us. Um, that you're at, at work doing good things, God, creating bright futures, writing stories that we can't even imagine, Lord, but one day we'll look at and say, man, only God could have imagined this and pulled it off. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would give us that kind of trust for you, that you would uh, grow us in our capacity to trust you in the midst of this transition, that I'm sure I'll have all kinds of, you know, wiggles and different things along the way. But God, we're, we're excited to see what you will do. And we know it will be good because you are good. And so we bring all this tr transition to you today um, in your powerful name. Amen.